You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Hi, everybody. This is Steve. I host the show each week. And as always, we're going to get into some of the political machinery going on here in the United States of America. But first, as always, let's uh, review our COVID uh, tracking numbers. Uh, As of this week, we are at 41 million cases here in the U.S., 660,000 people have died from the disease, and 378 million Americans have gotten uh, vaccination, either single dose or full two dose. So we continue to make progress. Uh, The infection rate, although still uh, peaking and rivaling where we were at the beginning of the year, the rate of infections does seem, at least over the past uh, week to two weeks or so, to be slowing down, and that's positive news, and let's, let's do what we can to make sure we keep that effort going. Uh, so getting into uh, what I want to talk about this week, and uh, this show, as always, is recorded uh, typically uh, the weekend before. Uh, it airs on Monday. Uh, in this case, it's uh, Sunday. And we have just come through the uh, somber memorial of 20 years uh, since the 9-11 attacks on the United States, where the World Trade Center buildings in New York were attacked and hit, uh, as well as the Pentagon and a plane that was crashed into a field in Shanksville, PA, Uh, marking uh, terrorist attacks on our country and the start of what would end up being a 20-year war in Afghanistan uh, along with wars in Iraq and Iran uh, and uh, as we'll talk in a few minutes a drastic shift in the political landscape of the United States which I will be uh, focusing on in the uh, coming segment here. Uh, I do want to take a moment uh, to also recognize that in addition to the the somber ceremonies that went on around the country in marking 9-11, for WJMS, it was also a a somber day on the 11th uh, as we uh, held or we went to the homegoing service for one of our own, uh, known on the station as Tommy Flame. His real name was Khalil Smith, and uh, we we attended myself and uh, also uh, Jamie, uh, the station owner, and his co-host on the We Out Here program that was aired here on WJMS Radio, and uh, it, it it was a you know obviously a very somber occasion, uh, a celebration of the life of. Uh, Khalil, a.k.a. Tommy Flame, and, you know, uh, a, a very sad occasion, um, as is any time you, you attend a funeral for someone, uh, you know, cut down in the prime of their life. So, you know, we, we do send our thoughts and our wishes and prayers out to uh, the family of Khalil and a.k.a. Tommy, and, um, you know, our, our prayers 
for healing for them. Um, there is, you know, obviously uh, a, a hole in not just our broadcast lineup, but uh, a hole in our family. You know, uh, we miss Tommy. Uh, we miss his smile. We miss his wit. Uh, we miss his back and forth with with Jamie each week on the show. Um, and and you know, our love and prayers go out to Tommy. Uh, rest in peace. And you will be sorely missed around WJMSRadio.com. So I want to get into next uh, discussion on um, reactions and events and things going on with the 9-11 commemoration. Uh, But first, let me just do one thing that I need to do, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Last week's show, we we talked about the Texas anti-abortion law. And I just wanted to make sure that some clarifications were were issued on uh, things that were said in that. Uh, the first one being that uh, under the new law in Texas, there are no uh, exceptions for uh, pregnancies that result from rape or incest. The only exceptions are for medical reasons where uh, the health of the mother may be impacted by the pregnancy. Um, But other than that, there are no uh, granted exceptions uh, under the new Texas law. And, you know, one of the things that was confirmed is that uh, because the law basically deputizes civilians in the act of enforcing the restrictions, um, the state cannot be sued as a result of you know, a a suit being brought under the law because it is considered a civil action and not a criminal action for number one, and because the the governor and the secretary of state who are normally the ones that get sued under such an action are not tied to this law. So I just wanted to make sure that those points were clear from last week's show. If you want to go listen to my discussion on the Texas law, you can go to the uh, WJMS website at WJMSRadio.com or you can go to our archive site at SoundCloud.com and search for uh, WJMS, which will bring up the show listings, and then you can further search for Fired Up, and you will get the show list for shows that uh, are archived there. So I just wanted to make sure that we, we clarified that so that there's no misunderstanding on that. So in getting back to um, some points I wanted to, to bring up uh, revolving around the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, one of the things I did want to uh, talk about briefly is the impacts that 9-11 had on our politics here in the United States. Um, those of you that are, are you know, old enough to remember with clarity what happened um, after the uh, attacks in New York and Washington, D.C. and the crash of the plane in Pennsylvania, Uh, What you may recall is that the United States was unified around a common purpose, um, unlike any that had been seen in in recent memory, uh, perhaps going back as far as World War II. And uh, what we saw was a, a unity of thought, a unity of politics, and a unity of messaging that came out uh, from 
the leadership of the country and echoed by the uh, opposition party at the time. And, you know, a lot of progress made in bridge building uh, around responding to what had happened on 9-11. So there was an article uh, that came out in the Washington Post on September 11th, and it uh, you can go to their website and search for it. The title of the article is After 9-11, A Rush of National Unity, Then Quickly, More and New Divisions. And the article, uh, which is uh, a little bit lengthy, it's about 2,400 words, uh, goes into some detail on the uh, political landscape and the changes that happened uh, in the the time period after the 9-11 attacks and kind of walks us through a timeline of sorts, starting with President George W. Bush, then President uh, Barack Obama, followed by President Donald Trump and bringing us up to our current president, Joe Biden. And, you know, all four presidents have uh, been engaged with the war in Afghanistan that was started right after September 11th. And also what we've noticed is from an original unity uh, posture in the country, which saw President George W. Bush having a 90% approval rating uh, immediately following the September 11th attacks uh, before it uh, came back down and as his presidency progressed uh, and ended with the economic crisis of 2008. Um, But the overall approval rating um, and the unity in the country was something that was, uh, as I said, not seen to such a large degree since perhaps World War II. Uh, In the article, um, one of the things it points out is it it identifies some of these expressions of unity, including an acknowledgement by uh, former Vice President Al Gore, uh, who had been the candidate that uh, George W. Bush defeated for the presidency in the in the contested election of 2000. And um, uh, former Vice President Gore uh, actually at a speech called uh, him, that is Bush, uh, my commander in chief, uh, that's quoted, uh, saying, quote, we are united behind our president, George W. Bush, behind the effort to seek justice, not revenge, to make sure this will never, ever happen again and to make sure that we have the strongest unity in America that we have ever had. Uh, The audience, which was largely uh, Democratic, gave him a standing ovation uh, for that point. Um, Additionally, the, the article notes that trust in government rose in those days after the attacks. Shortly after 9-11, trust in government jumped to 64%, up from 30% before the attacks. According to Public Opinion Strategies, a Republican polling firm that was closely tracking public attitudes to the attacks. By the summer of 2002, the firm found the trust had fallen back to 39%. And stepping out of the article for a second, if you contrast that, the current trust in government is somewhere around half that amount. Uh, uh, It is below 20% and has been as low as, I believe, 11% uh, during portions of the uh, prior administration under former President Donald Trump. 
going back to the article, it reports about how uh, the late Senator John McCain uh, was quoted as saying that America was, quote, more divided and more partisan than I've ever seen us. And that was five years after the 9-11 attacks. Today, as the article cites, after many contentious elections, political warfare over economic, cultural, and social issues, and a domestic ta attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, many Americans would say things have become worse. President Bush um, described the world at that time uh, as a world facing uh, issues of good versus evil. And, you know, again, this was going back, you know, 15 years ago. But today's politics at home is still, you know, often practiced that way. You know, we hear constant discussions about you're either with us or against us, um, you know, and these these black and white expressions of the way in which many Americans approach political battles. You're either all in with the team, red or blue or not in at all. If you win, I lose and there's no middle ground. Um, so we uh, we seem to have degenerated in large portion into you know into a position of national disunity and we've talked about this many times on show the political divide the social and economic uh, divisions the you know the uh, legal the legal issues that drive wedges between uh, all of us and you know it's it's just one Thing after another that seems to push us further and further apart as a nation. So, you know, while that isn't to say that we need another 9-11 style event to reunify the country, we do need to find more and stronger ways to bring our country back together uh, rather than to keep diving into the things that drive us apart. So, you know, in, in some, and, and this is just a, a tip of the iceberg uh, uh, review of it, the politics uh, of the United States in the 20 years uh, since the 9-11 attacks have gone from, you know, being more unified than pretty much ever before in our history to being as divided as we have ever been uh, in our history, perhaps going back as far as the Civil War. So, you know, we have we have work to do. And I think, you know, our call to action and the things we need to do is to uh, gather and, and strengthen and coalesce around the core things that the, the majority of uh, the uh, American population in the middle, you know, the the extreme left and the extreme right are are always going to be out there throwing their opinions and their their thoughts and their uh, intentions into the mix but it is it is vital that the large uh, portion of the american electorate in the middle and as i talked about in last week's show we talked about that great silent majority um, needs to step up to the plate and and use their influence both at the polls as well as in communication with our representatives to try and and push our elected officials toward compromise toward working together toward seeing the common goals that 
need to be addressed in order to make our country a better place. As we've heard over the past um, weeks and months, there's been much discussion over you know, the infrastructure package and the political divides and arguments going on around that. That's another example of why we need to perhaps find the cooler heads in the room and, and move their message forward and strengthen that message in order to get these desperately needed things done uh, in, in our, our infrastructure um, in an intelligent, cost-effective, and efficient way in this country. So, you know, there is uh, a lot of work to be done um, now that the war in Afghanistan is, quote, over, close quote, and, you know, the, the troops have been brought home for the most part. Uh, there may still be some American boots on the ground, you know, helping to handle the final details and other things revolving around uh, getting Americans and, and our friends and allies out of that country. But military hostilities from the standpoint of U.S. troops uh, is pretty much at an end in Afghanistan. And again, we're 20 years out from when, you know, uh, our president sent us in there. And, you know, the debate is now going on as to what did we accomplish and so forth. And we'll we'll get into that more and more in, in future shows as more and more of that information comes out and, and becomes part of the public discussion. Uh, so for right now, we'll we'll leave it at that uh, and just say that one of the things, you know, we can take away from the tragedy of September 11th uh, is that. Uh, for a, a brief shining moment, uh, the United States of America was extremely unified and stood on, on the ground of a single purpose. Uh, and you know, our, our political uh, differences and, and everything else was pushed to the side because for that period of time, we all realized the one simple truth that we are all Americans and that you know, our country all of our country had been attacked and it would require all of our country to respond to that attack. If we can recreate that sense of unity uh, in today's political climate, uh, there, there is no limit to the positive good that I believe we can accomplish. So, you know, it, it is clear that, you know, we have work to do. Uh, it is clear that we need to learn lessons from what happened to us on September 11th and from what we did in response to that attack. And I'm not just saying, you know, a, a military response. I'm not just saying, you know, we we invaded Afghanistan. We went to Iraq. We went to Iran. Uh, you know, we hunted down and uh, terminated Osama bin Laden, along with other leaders of Al Qaeda. We imprisoned so many people and so forth and so on. I'm talking about the good that came out of the attacks, the unification, the unity, the sense of common purpose. That's where this country, in my opinion, needs to get back to. And until we do, we're, all, we're just going to have these back and forth battles and we're not going to get anywhere. And one need look no further than the political struggles that have been going on around the infrastructure package to see exactly what I'm talking about. So, you know, something to think about, you know, again, 
we should be in communication with our elected officials and make sure they understand our position on it. Uh, it is something that we will continue to talk about here on Fire It Up. But right now, we're going to take our first break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk uh, some more about the uh, uh, anti-abortion laws, um, not, not in Texas this time. We're going to move over to Mississippi. So right now, we're going to take our break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break, so stay tuned.
And welcome back to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. So we're going to pivot now and uh, talk about the current crop of abortion laws, and in particular, uh, a case coming out of the state of Mississippi, which uh, will be heard by the Supreme Court uh, in October. The central point of this case is that uh, the Supreme Court in deciding this case could effectively end the constitutional protections for a woman's right to get an abortion uh, via the law of Roe v. Wade and the uh, subsequent case, uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which upheld and further defined what the situations are under which a woman uh, can can get an abortion you know, in the United States. And uh, we talked last week about the law that uh, was signed earlier this month in Texas where it set a, a deadline of six weeks as the time during which a woman could get an abortion of an, a pregnancy. The argument being that at six weeks it is possible to detect a fetal heartbeat uh, an argument that is uh, being debated uh, by medical and scientific professionals uh, back and forth uh, as to whether or not that is actually true. Um, medically, uh, according to science, uh, a fetus at six weeks does not have a heart. It has not uh, been uh, developed or grown yet. So the likelihood that there is a fetal heartbeat, according to the scientists, uh, is uh, near zero. So the Mississippi law, in a nutshell, uh, was uh, passed in 2018 
uh, coming out of Mississippi's Republican-backed or or Republican legislature, and it bans an abortion uh, after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, The law was appealed to uh, state courts, and uh, they ruled against the law, uh, which, uh, according to an article in Reuters, um, legislature, legislators enacted with full knowledge that it was a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it means that they rejected uh, this law uh, that legislatures ha- legislators rather had put forward, knowing that it would uh, run afoul of the the guidelines set under Roe and Casey and uh, counting on the fact that it would wind up in the Supreme Court and force the court to make a final determination on whether or not the uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood decisions were going to be overturned. Um, so, you know, it, it's, as it said in the article, uh, it's been a long-standing aim of religious conservatives to overturn Roe v. Wade which recognize that a constitutional right to personal privacy protects a woman's ability to obtain an abortion. The court, in its 1992 decision, uh, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, reaffirmed that ruling and prohibited laws that place a, quote, undue burden, close quote, on a woman's ability to obtain an, abor- an abortion. So, you know, the the... The Roe v. Wade law and the Casey uh, interpretation and law have set the guidelines under which uh, abortion in this country has been constitutionally protected. One of the things that uh, the Roe decision uh, put in place, it ruled that states could not ban an abortion before the viability of the fetus outside the womb. Now, uh, science and medicine put that time frame typically uh, between 24 and 28 weeks. Uh, As I said, the Mississippi law would ban an abortion much earlier than that at 15 weeks. And as we discussed in last week's show, the Texas law moves that back even further all the way down to six weeks. So, you know, the the Reuters article, um, you know, outlines that abortion opponents are hopeful the Supreme Court will narrow or overturn Roe, um, and the court's conservative majority, uh, including the addition last year of uh, former President Trump's three appointees, uh, and you know are are believed to be uh, moving in that direction. Um, so, you know, what's what's the outcome of this? What what does this all mean? Well, it, it, it all means that uh, if the Mississippi law is uh, victorious in the Supreme Court, that is the, the ban on abortions um, beyond 15 weeks is upheld, uh, it's likely that in order to do that, the court is going to have to uh, revise Roe and Casey to fit the precedent they will now set with Mississippi and move that viability deadline back to 15 weeks. Now, the keep in mind that you know there has not yet, as of this broadcast, been a, a court challenge to the Texas law. 
but it is highly expected that the law will be challenged. Uh, the challenge will go through the appeals process and make its way to the Supreme Court. And depending upon who you listen to, it is uh, felt that e the Supreme Court in its current 6-3 conservative configuration is um, uh, likely to uh, uphold the Texas law, thus moving that deadline back or, or that, that time frame back to six weeks uh, for all um, constitutionally protected abortions, um, or that the law will be declared unconstitutional. Uh, and right now, uh, legal analysts are leaning more toward uh, it being uh, proven unconstitutional rather than constitutional, but that's all set in a framework of what happens with the law coming out of Mississippi. So, you know, it, it's likely that a challenge, even a challenge brought uh, before the end of this year, likely wouldn't make it into the court's docket before sometime mid to late next year, and it might be, you know, October of 2022 when the court decides that. Now, put in parentheses there, October of 2022 is right ahead of the November midterms, and the Supreme Court has a history of generally not bringing very large controversial decisions immediately ahead of uh, very large controversial elections, uh, whether it's midterms or the, the four-year national elections. Um, so, you know, it could be, you know, into 2023 uh, when we actually see a decision come down from the Supreme Court on the Texas ban um, based on what happens uh, in the Mississippi case, which is not expected to be decided until, as I said, mid to late 2022, caveat with the midterm elections. So it, too, may not get decided until 2023. What does that mean? Well, it means in the meantime, in Texas, the six-week threshold uh, will be in effect. That means that, um, you know, there will be women who have children that otherwise uh, may have been, you know, terminated uh, at, uh, during the pregnancy. Um, and, you know, as I said at the top of the show in, in clarifying, you know, there is no exception uh, in Texas for rape or incest, only for uh, issues related to the health of the mother. So it's likely that, you know, children uh, conceived under such circumstances and carried to term uh, will, you know, more than likely be placed for adoption, uh, placing a, a huge uh, strain on the adoption agencies in, in Texas, which are already, you know, trying to hand, handle, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of adoptions uh, that are there, they're trying to get done. Uh, and just make that problem even more of an exacerbated situation. And as I said at the top, if you add into that situation, you know, a woman who becomes pregnant as a result of a rape or as the result of, you know, incest, uh, if they do not determine within the allotted time frame that, you know, they are pregnant and that they want to end that pregnancy, 
then the law leaves them no choice but forces them to carry that child to term. Now, I should caveat this by saying this would be for anyone who uh, doesn't have the financial means to go somewhere else and have the procedure uh, performed, whether that be you know Mexico or another country south of the border uh, or to uh, Canada or to other countries around the globe uh, that you know these services are still provided. However, for the the vast majority and percentages that I've seen quoted are you know 85 percent of you know pregnancies, women are going to have to carry these children to term, uh, even though, you know, they are the result of a highly traumatic experience on their part. Uh, And, you know, that's going to create, you know, all kinds of psychological issues and so on and so forth. Um, So, you know, the the laws that are are being proposed in or, or, you know, passed in Texas and under review and and Supreme Court decision in Mississippi, as well as dozens of other states, uh, are not taking into account the consequences of what these laws will will bring forth. Uh, Keep in mind, the Roe v. Wade decision came in 1973 as the result of, you know, court battles that came up through the system Uh, and finally ended with the Roe decision. Prior to that time, there were uh, abortions that were performed. You know, the, the, the abortion industry didn't just pop up in 1973. Um, Abortions have been performed, you know, for, you know, hundreds of years in this country and, and more before that in other countries around the world. Uh, The, the difficulty was that the conditions and the methods used were, you know, ranging from being unsanitary to bringing downright dangerous uh, to the to the mother, and there were many women who died as a result of getting one of these so-called back alley abortions uh, all through the you know the 19th and 20th century here in this country and in other places around the world. The idea that a woman has a right to get a safe, medically sound uh, procedure to terminate a pregnancy was part of the driving force behind getting the Roe decision passed and the Casey decision you know, uh, affirmed to further define the terms at, at which a pregnancy could be terminated. So, you know, the, the risk is there that if this process happens, if Roe is overturned, that we will see uh, many, you know, poor and, uh, you know, women of color, you know, rural and other people who don't have the financial means to, you know, go on a, quote, vacation somewhere and come back being not pregnant. Um, and, you know, that's going to be a danger to you know, women and girls in this country uh, who fall victim to these, you know, to these uh, illegal practices that are being done, you know, behind closed doors and you know, way in the back and so forth in the shadows, um, you know. And I, I'm not hearing any 
arguments coming from um, legislators or other political leaders that you know are are discussing that element of the result of this decision, uh, along with the the burdens of you know adoptions for children who are the product of you know these types of situations or uh, from women who you know can't afford to to raise a child properly uh, and you know for whom it, it is a a uh, a social and economic uh, or a psychological burden so you know there is much work to do uh, if you know some form of protection for uh, you know a woman's right to control the the medical uh, treatment of her body uh, is is going to be protected in this country and this is something that I am I am concerned um, on a personal level I mean I have you know two daughters a stepdaughter uh, I have uh, two granddaughters and you know my my concern is for their well-being uh, you know in looking at how the, the government could go beyond this and make other decisions in terms of uh, the, the medical care that women in this country receive. Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's just something that we need much more discussion on. We need to uh, be communicating with our elected officials, as always, as we talk about here on this show, and you know, let them know that you know the the answers to these other issues that would be created by this law need to be uh, fleshed out. You know, the, the results of the elimination of the constitutional protections of Roe v. Wade are going to cause you know other uh, very very significant uh, issues and problems in our country in terms of. What to what's to become of the children that are are born who, you know, un- unfortunately may may not have been born under other circumstances, um, you know, and, and never mind the fact that the simple exclusions of, you know, a, a pregnancy can be ended to, quote, protect the health of the mother, close quote. Those protections are being offered without any details on situations or conditions where that that protection will come into play so you know this is going to be a very long and drawn out um, medical slash legal process that we are going to be going through for many years to come but in the meantime there will be children born whose uh, whose future will be uncertain uh, who may be placed into an adoption uh, system in this country that is already uh, stretched thin and will be stretched even thinner by the addition of, of you know, these children that are born uh, and not able to be adequately cared for by their mothers. And, you know, this is something that this country is going to have to deal with. And to, to the, the conservatives out there, uh, I, I wonder, particularly uh, female conservatives out there um, I wonder how much you realize uh, your how much you are voting against uh, your own and and your your sister's uh, best interests by you know advancing these laws forward uh, 
it should be noted that all of, in the Texas law, all of the Republican female legislators voted in favor of, uh, you know, implementing this law. Um, so, you know, for the, the women of childbearing age in Texas who happen to be in the, the, um, the jurisdictions of these Republican female legislators, uh, I think the question needs to be asked, you know, why did you do this? Uh, you know, did you consider that the, the women in your district uh, may be victimized by this law, may be uh, subject to additional uh, you know, pain and suffering, and that the children will be subject to additional pain and su- suffering by your passing this law uh, simply to stay in lockstep with your political party. Um, you know, this, is, this is a great example. No, let me rephrase that. This is an example. I won't call it great. Uh, because I, I think it is anything but great. Uh, but this is an example of where our political leaders are, are voting along a political necessity rather than in the best interest of their constituents. Uh, if, if you are a Republican female legislator in Texas or in Mississippi or any of these other states that are, are pushing these laws forward, uh, and you are not uh, talking to your female constituents to gather their thoughts on it, um, you know, you're, you're doing them a disservice. So, you know, as, as we always say, we need to make sure that we are in communication with our elected officials, particularly those both at the state level and the federal level uh, who happen to be female, and who happen to be following along in this this conservative lockstep uh, march uh, toward these laws, and you know have that that conversation as to why are you voting for this? Uh, you know this is not what we want, and let them know that you know there are repercussions to that. Uh, and to the the men conservative legislators out there at the the state and federal level. Um, you know, what qualifies you to determine what is the best health option for a woman? Uh, you're not female. Um, you know, why, why do we have these decisions being made by these largely male panels uh, and, you know, without getting an adequate input from their female constituents as to what the voters want? Uh, so, you know, there is a lot to uh, digest in this. We're going to keep, you know, touching on this as the weeks progress, and I will keep you informed as to what happens uh, once the Mississippi law comes up on the Supreme Court docket, and we will see where it goes from there. But this is a very uh, serious concern for those who are advocates of a, a woman's right to choose and for protections for that right under our Constitution. And as always, you know, I want to hear, you know, what your opinions are out there. Send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com and let me know where you fall on these, these laws coming, you know, out of Texas and out of Mississippi, um, you know, and, and what 
what your legislators at the state and federal level are saying about it. So, you know, send your send your thoughts to us in an email, firedupradio at yahoo.com, and we'll bring them on, on the air, and we will talk about them. So uh, I hope to hear from, you know, more of you as we go forward with this. All right, um, last subject for the show, and I'll touch on this quickly. Uh, I'll include a link for this article uh, on the, the uh, Facebook page, but an article came across uh, my desk that came from the uh, Los Angeles area and uh, was reported in The Guardian uh, that talks about the Los Angeles Police Department has directed its officers to collect the social media information of every civilian they interview, including in, in, sorry, including individuals who are not arrested of a, or accused of a crime, according to records that the Guardian uh, news organization uh, obtained. Um, there's a lawsuit uh, that charges that the Rodeo Drive Task Force has been stopping and arresting black people without cause. 99% of the people arrested in Beverly Hills cases by uh, the, quote, Safe Streets Unit were black, the lawsuit says. And, you know, it goes on, the article goes on to describe these, these cards uh, and that they are asking for information we would normally believe is protected including social security numbers and email addresses and phone numbers and addresses and other information, including uh, information on all of your social media handles. So, you know, if you're on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Snapchat, TikTok, you know, all of them, they are working to collect this information. Um, this goes back actually to 2015 where uh, the police department added social media accounts as a line of physical field interview cards, according to a newly unearthed uh, memo from the previous LAPD chief, Charlie Beck. Similar to a nickname or an alias, a person's online persona or identity used for social media can be highly beneficial to investigations. Now, on the surface, that may not seem like, you know, too big of a deal, but uh, one of the uh, uh, companies that is providing the, the resources for, you know, completing these cards online also provides them with a list of preset hashtags, all of which, according to the article, uh, are related to uh, organizations of color such as Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and others, and none of them are related to, you know, uh, organizations like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, you know, and, you know, clearly this is a, a another form of stop and frisk where, you know, the, the people of color who are stopped and, you know, these hashtags and their social media information uh, just are, are being used as another way to identify, um, you know, black, Latino, and other people of color uh, for no apparent reason. Now, you know, again, remember, as I read, it's not for people who are being arrested. 
It's for people who are stopped walking down the street. If you remember the New York City police program called Stop and Frisk, uh, they were overwhelmingly targeting um, black males, Hispanic males, uh, in these encounters with police where they would stop you and literally search you for weapons or contraband or other things with no probable cause other than the, than the color of your skin. So, you know, this is another of those type of cases. And, you know, the, the cards uh, are, and, and these, the software that they use are intended to gather these social media identifiers uh, so that they become part of the database that can be used uh, you know, for other operations that may or may not be related to a particular crime. Uh, and, and again, keep in mind that according to the information, the hashtags that are you know, preset in the software that's used in the electronic version of these cards are almost exclusively for groups comprised of people of color. Um, you know, and I, I will post this article on the Facebook page. Uh, it will be available, you know, by the at the time the show airs, uh, so that you can read it for yourself and just see how this information that was collected by the Brennan Center for uh, Criminal Justice uh, is is using or, or is being used by police departments in basically this electronic stop and frisk program. Now, this is something, again, if you're a listener to this show, this is something that can be uh, used for political purposes. Um, there's no information or no uh, um, precedent that says that this information is exclusively for the use of law enforcement, which means that political organizations could file uh, Freedom of Information Act requests or other requests to get access to this database of people and identify these people, uh, you know, for whatever purposes they want. So check out the article, check out the link that's going to be on the Facebook page. Uh, this is something that we definitely want to uh, take up and put into our call for action in terms of communicating with our local elected officials, uh, those, those organizations within our governments that run the uh, local police forces, and make sure that we're letting them know that this is not something that we approve of. This is something that we don't want them to do. Uh, it's an invasion of privacy. If there is no crime committed, police officers have no right to, to gather this information. Um, you know, if you're not sure, read the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution against unlawful search and seizures. Um, you know, this is clearly an overreach by our police departments, and it's something that we must stand up and fight against. So on that note, we will wrap up this week's show. As always, I appreciate everyone listening. Please make sure that you're staying safe as the Delta variant is still out there and is still rampaging across the country. Um, wear your masks, wash your hands, and if you can, please get your, get your vaccine, get your vaccination. Uh, it is uh, in conjunction with 
the hygiene methods. It is the best way to protect yourself against the disease. So that's going to wrap it up. Everybody, please take care, stay safe, and I look forward to talking to all of you again in seven days. Started yesterday, and we're already late.